0: Our sermon passage is Genesis, chapter 24, verses 1 to 67. This passage is not printed on the bulletin, so if you have your Bible, please open it to Genesis, chapter 24, or you can follow along on the screen. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land, must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things rebecca had a brother whose name was laban laban ran out toward the man to the spring as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of rebecca his sister thus the man spoke to me he went to the man and behold He was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, "'You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, "'but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son.' "'I said to my master, "'Perhaps the woman will not follow me.' "'But he said to me, "'The Lord, before whom I have walked, "'will send his angel with you and prosper your way. "'You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house.' then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And you will say to me, drink and i will drink and i will draw for your camels also let her be the woman whom the lord has appointed for my master's son before i had finished speaking in my heart behold rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder and she went down to the spring and drew water i said to her please let me drink she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said drink and i will give your camels drink also So I drank and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, If you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken." When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's, Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for reading the Eliezer passage for us. It's a long passage, and we're going to take a look at it today and and probe the depths of what does it mean? Whether or not this chapter intends to say that a biblical marriage is an arranged marriage, is beyond the scope of this morning's agenda. I'll leave that to more proficient preachers than myself. Uh, But just as this was a long passage, an important passage, every word of God is important and the length of it tells us something about the importance of it for understanding God's word. In the same way that this is a long passage, I want to give you fair warning that this morning's sermon is not going to be a 2020. Uh, In fact, when it comes to duration, this is going to be much more like a test match. In fact, a test match, I hope that you will experience the glories of the fifth day. So if you would uh, just join me in prayer and we will invite God to open the glory of his word and of his gospel to us from Genesis 24. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servants. We thank you for salvation history and for the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would preach through me in spite of me. I pray that the glory of of your gospel would be heralded in this room for all to hear. Lord, I pray that you would bring to salvation those who do not yet know Christ. I pray that you would show us Christ. God, I pray that he would be magnified and glorified and lifted up. So God, I I pray, help me. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, so that all may hear and believe I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How many of you like movies? Yeah, we've got a few up here, a few scattered around. We, we can sit in a movie for two hours, hour and a half at least. Uh, and yet a scripture reading that goes ten minutes is increasingly rare. How many of you like romantic comedies? Fewer people are willing to admit that. Oh, there's one, yeah. Thank you, Trey. I like romantic comedies as well. Now, however, I do want to just acknowledge something about the romantic comedy. There are many, it seems like hundreds of thousands of millions of billions of trillions of romantic comedies, each grossing more than a million dollars, and people are getting rich, But here, I want to spoil it for you. There's only actually one romantic comedy. They just bring in different actors with different names. And it's the same story that gets recycled over and over and over again. So let me ruin it for you. Uh, This is every romantic comedy. A boy meets a girl. And they don't like each other. But they are forced to spend a lot of time together. Eventually, against all odds, they fall in love until they encounter a major conflict. Usually, it's something that happened before they met that wasn't revealed as they were falling in love. This conflict separates them from one another until, for a variety of reasons, they realize they cannot live without each other. And so, with dramatic music and a lot of suspense, they are drawn back together. Sometimes they run toward each other in a beautiful field Sometimes they meet at the top of the Empire State Building, or maybe even the Burj Khalifa. But when they finally see each other, they melt into one another's arms, and they kiss. Roll the credits. That's every romantic comedy. You don't need to see another one. Just substitute the names, and the actors, and the titles, and that's it. You know, that's not terrible. We, we can watch many romantic comedies and pretend to like each one. Did you know that God has a favorite romantic comedy? And that's the one that we have just heard read to us this morning. In fact, just as every romantic comedy has the same sequence of plot points, so what we had read to us in Genesis 24, there are eight plot points that that God has identified and they will recycle in the Scriptures. So let me just give you these, and then I'll show you where they are in Genesis 24. Plot point number one for God's favorite romantic comedy is that there is a man traveling far from home. Number two, he sits by a well. Number three, women come to the well. Number four, water is drawn at the well. Number five, the woman runs home to tell news of the man. Number six, that man is invited for supper. Number seven, uh, when he is at supper, he is betrothed to the woman from the well. And number eight, this betrothal leads to marriage and consummation. Robert Alter calls this sequence of plot points a type scene. So what I want to show you today is this type scene in Scripture. Let's take a look at these eight plot points in Genesis 24 to get us started. Plot point number one, we have a man far from home. Abraham sent his servant far from home in order to find a bride for his son Isaac. Verse 10, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. We have a man traveling far from home. Plot point number two, he sits by a well. See it there in verse 11? And he made the camels kneel down outside of the city, where? By a well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women come out to draw water. That leads us right into our third plot point. A woman comes to the well. See that in verse 15. Before this servant had finished speaking to the Lord in prayer, behold, Rebekah, who had been born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Plot point number four. Water is drawn. Take a look at that in verse 17 and 18. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink my Lord. She quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. In fact, let's just keep reading a couple more verses. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. And this is what the servant had prayed. I will know that this is the woman that you choose because she will give me water, but she will also water 10 camels. Have you ever thought how long it takes to water 10 camels? Well, of course you have. We live in the middle of a desert. This is something that you've thought about, right? That's a commitment of many hours. So you something about Rebecca. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw more water, and she drew for all of the camels. So she's going back and forth, working up a sweat, and look at what the man was doing in verse 21. The man gazed at her in silence, wondering whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He was no help at all. She's watering camels for many hours. and He's like, I wonder if she's the one. But water is drawn. Then we get to verse, our, our plot point number five. The woman runs home to tell of the man at the well. Verse 28. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's house, all about these things. And then plot point number six, the man is invited for supper. Take a look at verses 31 through or 31 and 32. So um, Rebecca's father said, "Come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels." Go down to verse 33, then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I've said what I have to say. So we've gotten down through six of the eight plot points, and then there's an intermission. And I don't know if you noticed this when Noreen was uh, reading it, but from verses 34 all the way through 49, there is no new information given to us. And it can be kind of redundant for us to read. We can say, you know, this is is kind of boring. We've heard this. It's it's repeated. But in the Bible, when something gets repeated, it's God's way of saying this is very important. The information I am giving to you is extremely important. I want you to take note of this. And so we're going to cycle back through the first six plot points. So plot point number one, there's a man traveling far from home. Take a look at verses 37 and 38. So this is the servant at supper explaining what we already know. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. And so he's explaining, I am far from home. I've come to you on a journey because my master wants someone from his own clan to be the wife for his son. And God has prospered me. I am far from home, and I have come to his very clan, you. Plot point number two, verse 42, he recounts that he sat at a well. Verse 42, I came today to the spring. Okay, plot point number three, a woman comes to the well, verse 45, the first part, and before I had finished speaking in my heart, that is in prayer, Behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Plot point number four. She came to draw water, continuing in verse 45. And she went down to the spring and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink. And I will give your camels drink also. So I drank and she gave the camels drink also. And then that catches us up. We have plot points numbers uh, 5 and 6. The woman ran back to her uh, mother's home, tells of the man at the well who was then invited to supper, and he catches us up in verse 49, 49. Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Okay, so here I am. You've summoned me to supper because Rebecca told you about all of these things. Now I'm here. And my question is, will you permit Rebecca to be the bride of Isaac, the son of my master Abraham? Now the story continues, right? Plot point number seven is betrothal. At the supper, the woman is betrothed to the man. Take a look at verse 51. Behold, Rebecca is before her, take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son. As the Lord has spoken. Which brings us to our final plot point in God's favorite romantic comedy, Consummation. Take a look at verse 67. So, Abraham's master brings Rebekah back home. Isaac is out meditating in the fields. Interesting, he looks up to see the stars in the heavens. And that reminds us of a promise given to his father Abraham that God would make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now we have the son of promise looking at the stars and the woman through whom these descendants will come into the world greets him in that setting. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 67, then Isaac brought her, Rebecca, into the tent of Sarah his mother who had died just three years previous and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Did everybody see these eight plot points? We saw them twice, right? At least plot points one through Six. God is saying in Genesis 24, I want you to know this story. I want you to know how I kept my promise to Abraham. I want you to know how I brought Israel as a nation into the world. And I want you to know this, and I want you to look for it. Interestingly enough, God loves this story so much that it happens again in Genesis 29. Just flip over to Genesis 29 what I want to do here is read through chapter 29 and there's so much that we could say about chapter 24 and so much we could say about 29, but the only thing I want us to do today is to look for these eight plot points. I'm trying to show you that, that I'm not making this up, that these eight plot points are here, repeated. Take a look. We're going to look, first of all, for what? For a man traveling far from home. The context is that Jacob, who is Isaac and and Rebekah's son, had a twin brother, Esau. And he had uh, taken Esau's birthright from him, and then he had deceived his father and stole the blessing. Which means that now uh, the promise to Abraham is going to go through Jacob and not through Esau. So Jacob has to run away because his life is in danger of having deceived his father and stolen what belonged to his brother Esau. Chapter 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. There it is. Plot point number one. We have a man far from home. Plot point number two. He should sit at a well. Look at verse number two. And he looked and he saw a well in the field and behold three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. So here we have a man far from home, Jacob, and he goes and he sits by a well. Now on the one hand, this makes sense. That if you're thirsty, where do you go? You go where there's water. And so anyone traveling far from home will sit by a well, but it's explicit in the text here in both cases. Third plot point we should be looking for is that a woman should come to this well. Verse 3. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. And he said, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, yeah, we know him. Verse six. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, yes, it's well. And look. Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. A woman comes to the well. And he said, Behold, it's still high day. I want you to note this. It's still 12 o'clock. This is not when people go to the well because it's too hot. You go to the well at night when it's cool. It's still in the middle of the day, Jacob says. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. You know, get inside uh, Abraham. Or, sorry, Jacob's mind here. He wants to be alone at the well with Rachel. They said, we cannot until so all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with his father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. There's plot point number four. Water is drawn from the well. It's interesting. In verse uh, chapter 24, it was uh, Rebekah who drew water. Here it is Jacob who drew water. And you'll remember that it was Jacob and Rebekah that conspired together to deceive Isaac. Who does the drawing of the water is very important. It tells us something about each person. Rebekah and Jacob are active. Isaac was a little more passive. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Verse 12, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. What should we be looking for? She should run home. Say, hey, there's a man at the well. That's exactly what happens here. And she ran and she told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. He's looking for more nose rings and bracelets and earrings, right? He was made rich the last time someone like this came by. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now you'll notice we didn't get the meal. He was brought to the house, but we don't have a meal. So we want to note that. We want to look, is there going to be a meal? Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Which one of the two daughters had gone to the well? Rachel, that that becomes important because she's the younger. Not only is she younger, she's beautiful like her mother, or sorry, her aunt, Rebecca, Jacob's mother. But verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So it's the younger daughter that he wants. She's the beautiful one. She's the one that came to the well. The older daughter, well, she's not that pleasing to the eyes. Verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all of the people of the place and made a feast. So we had a betrothal, right? An agreement, seven years, and then the feast. It comes after. But we're going to see why the feast is moved here. This is a betrothal meal, and I'll, I'll show you that in a moment. So we have the betrothal, then the meal. Laban gathered together all the people of the place, and he made a feast. Verse 23... But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah, the older daughter, the less beautiful daughter, and he brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. He consummated with the wrong woman. So we have the right plot point, consummation, but he consummated with the wrong woman. You just got to hate it when that happens. Verse 24, Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. So Jacob had his wedding night, he woke up in the morning, rolled over, thought he'd see Rachel, and there was Leah, looking at him maybe a little cross-eyed. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, and I want you to remember what Jacob had done, and Jacob had told Laban everything that he had done. Jacob had, had stolen what belonged to the eldest, Esau, And Jacob was the youngest and he took it for himself. And then he wanted to do the same thing to Leah. Look at what Laban says. It's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. That's a dig. What you did is not what we do. Verse 27, we have another betrothal on the heels of the meal, which was a wedding feast but it becomes a betrothal meal because that meal sets up the betrothal for the younger daughter. Verse 27, complete the week of this one and we will give to you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, and to to be her servant, Now our last plot point, consummation, we see it a second time. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban another seven years. Verses 31 through the end of the chapter in verse 35 show this baby-making competition between Rachel and Leah as they're vying for Jacob's affection and they bring their servants into it. And so these four women, Rachel, Leah, Zilha, and Bilhah become the matriarchs of Israel. So, a couple of things a little bit out of order. We have a double betrothal, double consummation, which then is quadrupled with the servants, and yet you do see that it's a a variation on the same original story from Genesis 24. This is not the end. There's another in the Old Testament just like this. Flip over to Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter two, we're going to see Moses walk through the very same type scene. Exodus chapter two, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. There's our first plot point. The occasion here is just like Jacob fleeing for his life. Moses flees for for his life and he goes to the land of Midian, which is in Saudi Arabia, just next door to us. We have a man far from home. Second thing that we should be looking for, he should sit by a well. What does it say in the text, verse 15? He fled from Pharaoh, stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. What's the third thing we should be looking for? Women coming to the well? Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and filled their troughs to water their father's flock. Now we got po- plot points 3 and 4. Now remember, we had one woman come to the well in verse uh, chapter 24. We had one woman come to the well in chapter 29, but two wives. Now we have seven women coming to the well, and you have to wonder, is Moses going to have seven wives? But these women, these daughters, uh, came to the well, and immediately they're the ones that draw water. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them. That reminds us of Jacob as well. There were shepherds hanging around the well. And after saving them, Moses watered their flock. We draw water again. Next plot point, what should we expect? Women are going to run home, right? They're going to say, hey, there's somebody at the well. When they came home to their father, he said, how is it that you've come home so, so soon today? And they said, Well, you wouldn't believe it, Dad. An Egyptian here in Saudi Arabia delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and even watered the flock. So they tell news of this man at the well. So Ruel said to his daughters, well, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, bring him, that he may eat bread. He's invited for supper. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. We should be looking for betrothal. And he gave his daughter Zipporah, just one of the seven daughters. We have betrothal. She gave birth to a son. That's pretty good evidence of consummation. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Isn't that amazing? It's as if Moses says, okay, you already know the story. We've gone over it in Genesis 24. We've gone over it like twice in Genesis 24. We've gone over it again in Genesis 29. And now Moses says, writing of himself, I, the very same thing happened to me. Well, this is interesting. And it, it, it does prove the point that this is God's favorite betrothal story. This is how God brought people together in the Old Testament. But, but beyond that, what's the point? I think one thing to note is that this type scene of betrothal incorporates all of the major patriarchs and matriarchs of ancient Israel. In what we've read this morning in our hearing, we have mentioned Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. We've also mentioned Sarah, Rebekah, Leah, Rachel, Zilchah and Bilhah, and Zipporah. All of the major patriarchs and matriarchs are incorporated in this type scene. And when you think back to Genesis 12, and you think about the promise given to Abraham, go from your father's country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great. And, and whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless them. And if anyone curses you, I'll curse them. But through you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And so as we're reading through Genesis, we're really looking for, well, where's that, that, that descendant? Where's that line? Where, we want to follow the seed of Abraham. Where's the nation that's going to be a blessing to the other nations that comes from Abraham? And so God says, this is that. It, it's this type scene that incorporates the promise of a nation to bless all nations. For all the people in this betrothal type scene are very important in salvation history. There's more. Is this scene familiar to anyone beyond Genesis and Exodus? Is there any other places in scripture where a man journeys far from home, and sits by a well? I I hear it. Yeah, Jesus. The, The one through whom God will keep his promise to Abraham, the one through whom blessing does come to all of the nations of the earth, is himself incorporated in a betrothal type scene. Flip open your Bibles to John chapter four, This is, I mean, this is amazing. When we have eyes to see, and this is, by the way, one of the reasons I love the Old Testament. I'm a professor of Old Testament, and one of the reasons I was drawn to the Old Testament is because the Old Testament gives us eyes to see things in the New Testament that without the Old Testament, we can't see, And, and we can see a lot of good things in the New Testament, but... What I want to show you today is that that when we read John 4 with Genesis uh, 24 and 29 and Exodus 2 in our minds, something additional pops out for us to see. And, And this chapter becomes just so marvelous. And so I just want to pray that as we go through John 4 now, that the Holy Spirit would so work through the reading of His Word and through the preaching of his word that he would minister directly to you. And, and if you're not a Christian, if you've, you've said, you know, I just don't know what to do with Jesus. I want you to see this, that, that Genesis 20, not 4 and 29 and Exodus 2 were written more than a thousand years before Jesus lived out John 4. And when you see how the Old and the New Testament fits together, uh, it gives me great confidence that this is the Word of God. Uh, This is is His Word. He has written history, and He has recorded that history in His Bible. And when you see the Gospel by putting the Old and the New together, uh, my hope, my prayer for you is that you would say, I believe. This is true, and I want that. So I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to pray for all of us that that as we read through John 4 with this betrothal type scene in mind that we would marvel at the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, as we pause now in the preaching of your word, I plead with you, help us to see. Give us eyes to see. And I pray especially for those who, who have yet not known what to do with Christ. I pray that you would draw living water for them today, that they would be saved, that they would join us. God, in your merciful kindness, please continue to preach through me. In the name of Christ I pray, amen. All right, so my time starts now, right? That was all scripture reading. All right, start the clock. See, I told you it was a test match. Day five. All right, what's the first plot point that we should be looking for? Right on. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Well, that's not far from home. That is home. Aha, there it is, verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria is the northern territory of ancient Israel. And Samaria is between Galilee and Judea. So in some ways, it's not far from home. But actually, culturally, you couldn't be any further from home. Uh, Jews from the Galilee would actually go around Samaria to get to Jerusalem on feast days. The antagonism between Israel and Samaria was so great, and that dated all the way back to 722 B.C. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in, and because of the sin of the northern kingdom, God used the Assyrians to destroy the northern kingdom, and he almost wiped them out. But the Assyrians left the poorest people in the land. And then what Assyria would do is they would move people from one area to another because then they could control them better. And they moved all kinds of other nations into what, what is then now called Samaria in the day of Jesus, the northern kingdom. And the Jews who were left in the land intermarried with these pagan Gentiles. And so there was... antagonism between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Jews looked down their noses at Samaritans and said that that they were unclean, that they had compromised by intermarrying with pagans. Uh, So one thing to note, however, is that the Samaritans had a Bible. They kept, they changed parts of it, but they kept the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But instead of setting up a place in Jerusalem to worship, they set up a a rival shrine on Mount Gerizim. And that's another reason that the Jews were upset with them. So the Samaritans were a mixture of Jews and Gentiles practicing a counterfeit form of Judaism between Galilee and Jerusalem. Judea. So that's important. So He's going through Samaria on purpose. He didn't have to. He could have gone around like he often did, but he chose to. We have a man traveling intentionally far from home through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Man far from home sits at a well. Now look what John does. He doesn't explicitly tell us, go back and read Genesis 24. Go back and read Genesis 29. Go back and read Exodus 2. But he says Jacob's well was there. Now this is not the same well that Jacob sat at, because Jacob was up in Haran. But well, Jacob, Genesis 29. Any reader would have seen that in the first century, the people that John was writing to. So we don't instinctively go to Genesis 29, but that's what John is trying to get us to do as he writes this. The other thing is the, the hour. It was the sixth hour. That's precisely the time that Jacob went to the well. Remember? He saw the, the shepherds. He says, hey, it's still 12 o'clock noon. What are you doing here? There's a beautiful lady coming in. Why don't you water your flocks and get out of here? Uh, or come back later at night. Well, Jesus goes to Jacob's well in Samaria, far from home, at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, exactly when Jacob did. Plot point number three, we should expect a woman to come to the well. Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now at this point, Jesus is either in control and knows exactly where he is and why he's there, or he begins to get panicked. He says, oh no, I'm stuck in the middle of a betrothal type scene, and there's a, and there's a Samaritan woman coming, I better flee. So it's one or the other. Like he's either, okay, I know I'm at a well, I'm at Jacob's well, it's 12 o'clock. You know, or he, he needs to get out of there. But look what Jesus does. What's the next plot point that we should be looking for? Water should be drawn. Now do you think Jesus knows Genesis 24? Genesis 29 and Exodus 2. Yeah, you you know that he does. He wrote it uh, through Moses, I know. Uh, But he knows this romantic comedy. He knows what's going on around him. He's fully aware. And what does Jesus do? He initiates. He actively presses for the next plot point in this type scene. Right? Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Draw water for me. What does this mean? This means that Jesus has intentionally gone to Samaria, has intentionally gone to Sichar, has intentionally gone to Jacob's well. There was a particular well that he wanted to sit at at a particular time, 12 o'clock noon, because he wanted to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. And he is intentionally fulfilling a betrothal type scene, Which means what? Means that the Samaritan woman is the bride of Christ. But she's not the kind of woman we want for Jesus. No, no, no. It can't be the Samaritan woman. Because you've read this chapter before. It can't be. Well, just... Let's just take stock of who she is. We're going to get this details later, but I mean, we all know it or most of us know it. So let me just review some things. She's a Samaritan. We don't want a Jew marrying a Samaritan, except yes we do. Because Samaritans were partly Jew and partly Gentile, just like us. The church Yeah, yeah, but she's five times married. We don't want Jesus to marry a five times married woman. Except, yes we do. Because we've been five times idolatrous. We've served other gods. Yeah, but she's currently not even with her husband The man that she's with is not her husband. She's not just an adulteress. She's a fornicating woman. We don't want Jesus to marry a fornicating woman, except, yes we do. Because we've all sinned in so many ways. Figuratively speaking, she is the church. She's you, she's me. She's us, and Jesus knows this. Jesus has sovereignly selected her to be our representative in this betrothal type scene. So, so what Jesus is doing at the well, and I, I wanna be very careful, it's true and good and right to come to John 4 and to say that there's much to learn about evangelism and missions here. It's good and right to say, look at that, how the social taboos of, of Jews and Samaritans did not prevent Jesus from having this conversation. That's true and good and right, and that's all in the text. But what I want us to focus in on goes deeper than that to this reality that Jesus is selecting a bride for himself. And the Samaritan woman is that bride. So now then, Jesus knowing Genesis 24 and 29 and Exodus 2 is going to take his time drawing water for her, his bride. And so from verses seven all the way down to 26, all of that is Jesus drawing water. Now, there's so much there to say that I can't say today. So you'll forgive me for going through this fairly quickly Uh, We could spend many hours just looking at the richness of this this interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. But what I do want to bring out today is that we cannot fully understand these verses until we understand that we need to have Genesis 24, 29, and Exodus 2 as the necessary subplots on top of which these verses are being written and uh, from which these verses need to be understood. I would make the strong argument that John absolutely knows what he's doing in writing this down. He wants us to go back to these Old Testament passages. I would even go so far as to say that obviously Jesus knows what he's doing, but I would go so far as to say that because of the Samaritan Pentateuch, of which we find out this Samaritan woman seems fairly familiar with, that she is familiar with what is going on and she's kind of caught off guard and she's trying to feel out and so they're talking about water but I believe that Jesus and the Samaritan woman are also talking about betrothal you ever talk about something without talking about it of course we do especially if you're a parent You talk about something without talking about it, Jesus and the Samaritan woman are talking about something without talking about it. And if you're going to fully understand these verses, it's not just about water, it's about betrothal. And they're trying to feel each other out, and and the woman is trying to figure out, is he really seeking me for his bride? Let's take a look at these verses. In verse 9, the Samaritan woman seems to know that she's in a betrothal type scene. I think that she's, her comment is so much more profound than just the social taboos of Jews and Samaritans. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, how, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? You can't marry me. And if I draw you water, that's what you're saying. You're, you're, you're proposing betrothal here, so how, how can that be? Why would you do that? Then John says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, which would include marriage, climactically. They don't even talk to one another, let alone get married. Jesus then answers her, and again, in the subtext, he's affirming her. No, 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 I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I know we're in a type scene, a betrothal scene. Jesus answered him, If only you knew, if only you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. If only you knew who it is that is willingly, intentionally pressing this betrothal scene forward, you you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I've selected you to represent my bride. If only you knew how significant this moment was, not just for you, but for so many. Verse 11, kind of intrigued, the Samaritan woman says, but you're totally unprepared for this betrothal scene. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. This is sort of the ancient equivalent, like where's the ring? There's no jar. So get off your knees. You can't propose to me without a ring. You can't propose to me without a jar. You got nothing. And the well's so deep. Where are you going to get this water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now this is amazing. I don't know exactly what the Samaritan woman is thinking of here, but... John includes this because, yes, Jesus is greater than Jacob, and Jacob was in a betrothal scene just like this. Therefore, this is like what happened to Jacob, only greater. Are you greater? Is this happening? Is this greater than what happened to Jacob? And what's the answer? Absolutely it is. That is just a picture of this. And Jesus answers her, And says, of course I am greater than Jacob. I am a greater bridegroom than Jacob. And if better than Jacob, then better than Isaac and better than Moses. Someone greater than Jacob is here. And a a betrothal that is greater than all of their betrothals is being asked of you. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Those marriages were temporary. People died. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. This marriage is forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Yes, I am greater than Jacob, and the marriage that I am proposing is a greater marriage. You won't get thirsty again. You won't die. The marriage will last forever because only death can break marriage. Convinced, seemingly, in verse 15, the woman accepts the proposal. The woman said to her, okay, sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Is that about water? Maybe. Or maybe they're talking about water but not really talking about water. Yes is my answer. Yes. But then, and that's See, with this subtext, then the next thing that Jesus said makes sense. Otherwise, it's like, why is Jesus all of a sudden changing the topic? But he's not changing the topic because they've been talking about marriage the whole time. And in verse 16, Jesus says, well, you're totally unavailable for this. You said I was unprepared for this. Well, you're unavailable for this. Jesus said, go, call your husband and come here. Hmm. That, That will stop a betrothal in its tracks. And the woman, still holding out hope that she might be available, says, I have no husband. But Jesus said to her, you're right. You have no husband. But you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. You're still unavailable. You're still unable to proceed in this type scene with me. I cannot draw water for you. Which means I cannot progress this toward betrothal. Now the Samaritan woman seemingly changes the topic. The woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now I don't know, maybe she's discouraged. She says, okay, well this proposal's not going forward. I thought it was, now it's not. But he seems to know things, so I've had this burning question. And so she asks, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, there's a temple there. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she has a worship question. Now she may not fully understand how profound her question is related to the bigger picture, but John, who's writing the chapter, knows. Why? Because marriage is like worship. And adultery is like idolatry. You know why God wants us to keep our sexual lives pure? Why he wants us to guard our marriages? Ephesians 5 because our marriages are a picture of Christ and the church. False worship is like uh, adultery in a marriage. Adultery is like idolatry when we worship another God. And so although for us it's like, man, like, they're all over the place. They're talking about all kinds of things. It, it, to John and to us when we see it, it's all about the same thing. It's about water, it's about marriage, it's about worship. It all fits together. Jesus answers, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such a people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I just have to say, I have to exercise so much restraint to give no comment on those verses. I want to, but you don't want me to, because it would take too long. But moving on, he's drawing water for her. He's answering her question. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all of these things. And now, in verse 26, Jesus draws water for the woman. It's all been leading to this. And what do we know about Jesus in the Gospels? Does Jesus ever go around saying, look at me, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ? No, who normally identifies Jesus as the Christ? Demons? the disciples did, people who are healed, people who are forgiven. And what does Jesus say to them? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. It's a messianic secret. Just don't tell anybody that. Jesus is not going around in his public ministry before he's raised from the dead telling people that he's the Christ. I, I don't know of another place where Jesus does this. But this is Jesus drawing water uniquely for this woman. Why? Because that's how we're betrothed to Christ. When we confess with our lips and believe from the heart that Jesus is the Christ. To know that Jesus is the Christ is to become part of his bride. We'll talk a moment about what that means that he is the Christ. He draws water for her. So from 7 all the way through 26, it's all been about drawing water. Verse 27, what should we be looking for now then? The woman should run home. Say, hey, there's somebody at the well. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Why are you talking to her? Because they knew. They, they knew Genesis 24 and 29 and Exodus 2. And in the church, we're so used to knowing that Jesus doesn't get married to a woman. But they don't know. This is John 4. How, they, how would they know that their rabbi wouldn't get married? So, like, nobody, nobody dared ask him what he's doing. They knew what he was doing, but they, they marveled. They're like, a Samaritan? Like, they, they were in shock. Not, not a Samaritan woman, sort of the response that we should have. Uh, But they, they knew exactly what was going on. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She left her water jar. Remember what Jesus said? Anyone who drinks from this well will get thirsty again. I'm going to give you living water. She left her water jar. She now wants the living water. But it's not about water. We all need water to live. By leaving the water jar, it signifies that she's leaving behind her broken relationships, her broken marriages, and she's giving herself to Christ. I hope you have eyes to see that. She runs back into town, just as all the women at the well did. Verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat, eat something. Now, why would they want him to eat? Now, John knows that the next thing in the type scene is a a meal, right? So I don't know what the disciples are doing. Either they want to be a part of the type scene. Hey, we want to eat with you. Let's, we want to be there for this. Or they want to feed him before she, he gets invited into Sikhar so that he doesn't get married to a Samaritan woman. Just let's fill your stomach. You have no reason to go in for supper because if you go for supper, you might get engaged. And if you get engaged, then we're going to spend our time in Samaria. And that's not what we signed up for. Eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Very cryptic. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, and this is the meal in the type scene, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What is the will of the one who sent Jesus? Well, first of all, who sent Jesus? The Father. The Father sent Jesus for what purpose? to die on the cross why did jesus die on the cross to propitiate our sins we heard what propitiation means already it's that that jesus would take into himself the sins of the world and he would carry in his body our sins And then he would allow himself to be nailed to a cross. And when his body is nailed to the cross, our sins in his body are being nailed to the cross. And then he died. The death that we deserve because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus was buried. This is the will of him who sent Jesus. And when Jesus' body was taken off the cross and it was wrapped up and it was put in a tomb, our sins were wrapped up and buried And then on the third day, Jesus came back to life physically. His body came back to life. But when his body came back to life, he left our sins in the tomb. So that when Jesus came out on that first resurrection day, our sins did not come out with him. Our sins are forever buried. They're gone. It doesn't matter what your sin is it doesn't matter how how grievous it was if you put your faith in jesus christ the lord god sent his son jesus to carry our sins in his body to receive the wrath that we deserve to be buried and to leave our sins buried that's the will of god and jesus says that's my food And when Jesus says, that's my food, he's saying it within the context of a type scene where the food is a betrothal meal, which means it is at the cross that we are betrothed to Christ. And just in a couple of chapters, John 6, Jesus is going to say, unless you eat my body, or eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He's carrying on this, this food image Unless you eat me, unless you partake of this betrothal meal, which is me, which is my body and my blood, you can't be my bride. And what do we do every time we take communion? We call it the Lord's table. We take a piece of unleavened bread and we say, This is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. And then we take a cup. In the scriptures, it was a cup of wine. We say, This is the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out for you, take and drink. Do you realize that every time we do that, we're participating in a betrothal meal? And we're the woman at the well? And Jesus is every time recommitting himself to us. Yes, I know what I'm doing. I know that you are a Jew, Gentile, five times idolatrous people, but you're my bride. I came to purchase you with my blood. Isn't that awesome? It's a betrothal meal. It's it's a table of grace where the loving kindness of God is poured out for us in mercy. Betrothal here, so that's the meal. The betrothal runs from verses 35 down to 42. And if we're not thinking in terms of this betrothal type scene, it seems like Jesus is really all over the place. But he says, look, there's a meal that's going to happen. It's in the future. It's my body. In other words, he's saying, I'm not marrying this woman in the way that you marry women, but she represents A greater harvest of people that I am going to marry, the church. And so he switches his metaphor here from betrothal to harvest but what he's saying is there's work to be done for you to go out and gather my bride and bring her to the betrothal table. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food, the betrothal meal is my crucifixion which will be remembered by communion throughout the rest of the age. Your job, disciples, your job, Redeemer Church of Dubai is to go out into the harvest and to gather in the bride to invite people to this betrothal meal. And that's exactly what he says. Verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? It's not time to get married or betrothed. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together for the one... For, for here the, one, the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. In, in other words, again, so much could be said there. But what, the point I want to give you is go out and get the bride and bring her to supper. Go out and, and bear witness to, to the gospel that Jesus has died for his bride and invite people to come to the betrothal meal. And Jesus is saying that to his disciples. Before we go forward, you need to go and gather the bride. And Jesus is saying that to you. And he's saying it to me. He's saying it to us. We need to go out and bring in the harvest because the harvest is the bride. But when we have eyes to see then, the church has been participating in in this type scene in a number of ways. We're going out to invite. We're we're joining Jesus at the table where he is committing himself to us. But what about consummation? We have everything except consummation. Is there consummation here? Maybe, verse 39, the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Maybe there is a, a partial consummation every time someone is born again. You see the language? That when the imperishable seed of the gospel penetrates your heart and you're made a new creature, there is consummation. We are born again. We're made new creatures. But I think the ultimate consummation is yet to come. I just want to go back to Genesis 24. Remember how the original betrothal type scene ended Genesis 24 in verse 62 or 63 Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening he lifted up his eyes and saw and behold there were camels coming and Rebecca lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant who's that man walking in the field to meet us The servant said, it's my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after her mother's death, or after his mother's death. Okay, that's Isaac and Rebekah. But it's also Christ and the church. Remember in Genesis 22, the father, Abraham, prepares to sacrifice his son and he receives him back as if raised from the dead, the writer of Hebrews says. Isaac is a picture of Jesus. And and Isaac's marriage to Rebekah is a picture of Christ's marriage to the church. In fact, in Galatians chapter four, Paul tells us that we can interpret Sarah and Isaac allegorically. And he says that Sarah can be read as the Jerusalem above, which is heaven. You know what's amazing? We're in the middle of this type scene now and the end has not come. We're we're at the betrothal meal. We're gathering in the bride, but we're still waiting for ultimate consummation. But do you know how the Bible ends? Isaac took Rebekah into Sarah's tent, Jesus brings his bride, the church, into the Jerusalem above. Sarah's tent, allegorically, according to Paul in Galatians 4. And what happens when Jesus draws us into Sarah's tent in the Jerusalem above? Revelation 19, verse 6. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Rebecca put the veil over her face. It was granted to her, that's to us, to clothe herself, the veil over the faith to clothe her, clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. When we go into Sarah's tent in the Jerusalem above, we cover ourselves in the blood of our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by his grace, the good deeds that we have done in His grace. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Jesus. The story of Jesus and the church ends just as the, the story of Isaac and Rebekah, only way better. Rebecca drew water. Jesus draws for us living water. A marriage that will never end. where There will be no more mourning or crying or weeping. There will be no more death. There will be no more sin. But the best version of ourselves will be our clothing. We will live with Christ, our Isaac, our Jacob, our Moses, forever. My goal this morning has been to invite you to marvel with me at the wonder and the glory of the gospel, to see it in the Old Testament, to see how God is very intentionally doing things from Genesis to Revelation. And what we've been doing is called biblical theology. And and it's my prayer for all of us that we would increasingly have eyes to see. Don't ever think that anything is in the Bible, Old or New Testament, for no reason. Everything has its purpose. And I've invited us to see that we are like the Samaritan woman, unworthy to play the role of Christ's bride in God's favorite romantic comedy. And yet God has so cast us. He has purchased us with the blood of his son. Our dowry is the blood of our bridegroom. Next time you take communion, when you have a little cracker in your hand and a little thing of juice, remind yourself that what you're doing is profound. You, like the woman at the well, are in the middle of a betrothal type scene. You're at the table and consummation will come. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, this is marvelous. I pray that you would encourage our hearts. I pray that you would help us to to love you more, to leave our water jars by the well to choose Christ. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. And Lord, I pray that you would bring many through the preaching of your word to faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen.